This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 202. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also share the latest on my writing endeavors. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 60 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and her allies are closing in on the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. After redirecting a ley line and cutting power to the cult's arcane ritual, Kate used her veils and illusions to infiltrate their underground base. She reported back to her ally, the immortal wizard Murakir, telling him about the defenses the cultists set up around their entrance. Murakir said he would use his earth magic to close off the other exits from the base, to make sure that the cultists can't escape before reinforcements arrive. But that isn't all Murakir has been up to. While Kate was coming in the front door... Morgan and John entered the Brotherhood base from another direction, hoping to rescue any surviving captives before the cult could eliminate them. Once inside the tunnels, Morgan picked up on the scent of blood. Together with John, she followed her nose to the chamber where the cult had performed their ritual. There they found the cult's last two victims, a pair of homeless street rats who had been strapped to inversion tables and drained of their blood. There was no sign of Jared Tamlin or Silas Kenning, the two prisoners whom Morgan knows the cult wanted for more than just a sacrifice. Morgan followed the scent trail backward through the tunnels, finally arriving at the garage where the Brotherhood had housed the vans that they used to perform their abductions. But here the trail went dead in grisly, catastrophic fashion, because Murakir had gotten to the garage first. Morgan and John gazed in horror at a room strewn with the shredded remains of both vehicles and people. The Earth Mage attacked the cultists here, and apparently reveled in the carnage before sealing the exit with slabs of concrete. Morgan and John realized that Kate has allied herself with a monster. Murakir has no intention of waiting for the police to arrest the cultists. As soon as the complex is sealed he's going to stride in and kill all of them. Morgan and John aren't the only ones aware of Murakir's bloody intentions. Captain Shaw has warned Jared about the Immortals' history of killing prospective vessels. Not wanting to risk being next, Jared went with Shaw and their assistant Sophus as they tried to flee the complex. They went to one exit after another, only to find each one closed off by Murakir's magic. Trapped in a dead-end passage, Shaw had a flash of mad inspiration. At the captain's direction, Sophus opened a hole into the massive concrete channel that contains the underground river. Now they had a way out that Murakir could not block. 
and water rushed through it with the force of an oncoming train. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Laster Chapter 60 The water came in shockingly fast. In an instant of terror, Jared envisioned himself being smashed into the walls of the tunnel, his mangled body floating downstream until it splashed into the sea of stars like so much municipal sewage. But Jared had underestimated what a well-prepared water mage could do in a situation like this. Sophus stood less than a meter in front of the hole, his chalice raised to just above eye level, and arcane power glowed around him in a field of shimmering blue energy. His feet remained steady and unmoving as the water rose around him, untouched by the force of the river. The water bent around the mage's field as it struck, and the redirection robbed it of much of its momentum. The narrow tunnel still filled quickly, but the water did not batter them against the stones as it did so. When the hole was completely submerged, the force of the current eased. The mage beckoned to Shaw and Jared. They took one more deep breath from the still-shrinking pocket of air that remained at the top of the passage, then swam for the exit Sophus had created. Jared's vision was blurry, and he could only see a meter or two ahead in the hazy water, but Shaw's glow light cut through the gloom well enough for him to follow. They slipped easily out of the hole, the pressure in the flooded compartment now equalized with the water outside. The river's current dragged at Jared as it flowed past the hole, but once he was out and floating freely downstream, he could no longer feel it. He swam to the surface, let out a rush of breath, and gasped for more air. After a moment, his breathing eased again, and he lifted his glow light to look around. Shaw floated along about two meters away from him, treading water with small, efficient movements. The androgyne's eyes alternated between looking ahead and looking back at where they'd come from. "'Where's your man?' Jared asked. He'd been looking around for Sophus and hadn't spotted him. "'He went to open the hatch,' Shaw said. "'He'll be along shortly.' They sounded like they were trying to remain calm, unconcerned, but Jared heard the note of tension underneath. Won't that flood your whole operation down there? Shaw bared their teeth, a predator's display. Yes, the immortal is about to be reminded that his earth magic cannot stop water. And what about your people who were trapped down there? Shaw's expression sobered. They will do their duty. Their eyes flicked back to the darkness ahead, and they raised their glow light high. We're coming up on a tunnel. Take another deep breath, Doctor. In point of fact, Jared had time to take several deep breaths. He couldn't see the tunnel, but a solid wall came all the way down to the waterline ahead of them, so its presence could be inferred. He took one last breath about three meters before the wall, then dove, blinking hard to adjust to seeing underwater. His eyes burned, and he briefly wondered what sort of pollution he was exposing them to, but there was no time to worry about it. The tunnel loomed ahead of him, and as the path narrowed, the speed of the current increased. 
Jared kept to the center of the stream as much as he could, and he shot through the curving tunnel with a speed that reminded him of amusement park rides. Except here, there's nothing to keep me from smashing my head on the way through. Jared's lungs burned, and the tunnel seemed to go on for kilometers. Just when he thought he couldn't bear it another second, the path widened again, and the rippling, mirror-like surface of open water appeared above him. He swam hard for it, and when his head broke through, he gasped and panted for air. He was still bone-weary after his torture and imprisonment, and his arms and legs were burning from the exertion. He felt his muscles beginning to cramp up, and his head bobbed below the surface. Shaw appeared alongside him and took in his condition in an instant. The androgyne got one arm around him and helped him raise his head back above the surface. Then they started swimming for the wall, bringing Jared with them. To Jared's surprise, there was a narrow walkway there, running alongside the river. Shaw carried him to a set of heavy metal rungs bolted to the side of the channel, which formed a ladder up and out of the water. Jared summoned one last burst of effort and managed to haul himself out. He fell over onto his side and just stared, watching the river go by. I can't believe I just did that. Shaw climbed up after him, then knelt over him and took a minute to check his pulse, breathing, and pupils. The androgynes sat back on their heels and studied him for a long, silent moment. What? Jared asked. He could barely move his head, but he followed Shaw with his eyes. The androgyne's face looked haggard and drawn in the eerie green light of the glow sticks, but those eyes still watched him intently. When they spoke, Shaw's voice was low and thoughtful. You surprised me, they said frankly. I thought you were weak, that because you'd had a desk job your whole life, you wouldn't be able to handle real hardship. But you endured. You didn't give up. Shaw's mouth twitched with the barest hint of a smile. Our Lord chose wisely. You're a fighter. I respect that. Jared would have laughed in their face, but he just didn't have the energy. Don't take this the wrong way, he panted. But you've got a funny way of showing respect. Shaw barked a laugh. From your perspective, I suppose so. They looked up at the wall beside them, narrowing their eyes, as if reading something behind Jared's field of vision. We're about two kilometers south of the base. There's an access ladder over there. Shaw nodded past Jared's head. If you go up to the surface here, you should be outside Murakir's zone of immediate interest. Do you have a place you can hole up for a while? A friend's house? Jared had been thinking about that. He had a plan he felt pretty confident in, so he nodded. Something. You're letting me go, then? As promised, Shaw said. It wouldn't be wise for you to come with us now in any case. Not while Murakir is hunting us. If we can evade him for a while, either he'll go back to sleep or the Majestrix will rein him in. She doesn't like him running amuck in her city, as you might imagine. Jared snorted. Doesn't much like anyone murdering her people, Shaw. If I were you, I'd keep running. There was a flash of emotion in Shaw's eyes then, 
but it was there and gone before Jared could identify it. When they spoke, their voice carried a shade of uncertainty or hesitation. What we do is difficult. This world is diseased, full of suffering, violence, corruption. Beyond saving, were it not for our Lord's intervention, sacrifices must be made if that salvation is to happen, but they are never easy, and they shouldn't be. Shaw looked down at their hands, slowly clenching and unclenching their fists. I tried to minimize the damage. I had my brothers take only those whose lives had already hit bottom, who lived every day with the worst this broken world could do to them. The system had failed these people, Doctor. They were lost souls. Shaw shook their head. A lifetime in police work had shown me that I couldn't help them. No one could, not really. At least this way I could offer them something. Surcease. And the promise of a better world when our Lord returns. Jared stared up at Shaw. He was at a point beyond exhaustion, and he wasn't sure his professional skills were operating at full capacity at the moment. But it felt like Shaw was telling him the truth or what they believed to be the truth, at any rate. The androgyne was sincere, and they had just calmly, sincerely argued that their cold-blooded murder of the poor and the outcast was the kindest thing they could do for them. Jared had already known Shaw was dangerous. In that moment of quiet, honest vulnerability, though, the androgyne was downright terrifying. I don't want to have anything to do with you or your lord's salvation, Jared said at last. I know, Shaw said, with a quiet nod of acceptance. You still have hope. You believe this world can be fixed by the same broken people it has produced. That's all right. We have been waiting for a thousand years. We can wait a little longer. Shaw showed him that same, not quite a smile. In the meantime, we are at your disposal. Once I'm clear of this manhunt, I'll send you instructions on how to contact us. Jared blinked. Why on earth would I want to do that? Because the darkness is growing deeper. This city is on the edge of violence like nothing it has known in the last five centuries. There are evils at work here that defy description. The androgyne put a hand on Jared's arm, gripping it gently. You are the vessel. I doubted it before, but now I am convinced. The shackled god will give you wisdom to face the darkness, and we will follow your leading. Give us an enemy to fight, and we will fight it with all our strength. Jared had no idea how to respond to that. He could tell Shaw that the Brotherhood was an evil that defied description that their campaign of terror had brought more darkness to the city than he had ever thought possible. But such words would be meaningless to a true believer like Shaw. Still, it might not be crazy to keep a line of communication open to the Brotherhood. If they sincerely believed he was their chosen savior, they might pass on information to him, information that could be crucial for police investigations into their activities. He might even be able to act as a double agent inside the organization, 
and find out who in the halls of power was beholden to them. It would be dangerous. It wasn't something he had ever imagined himself doing. But the Brotherhood was apparently much bigger and more pervasive than he could have guessed, and it would take extreme measures to root them out for good. And in the meantime, a tiny voice noted in the back of his mind, there are other ways you could use them. They've already shown they aren't afraid to cross the Syndicate. How much damage could they do to the vampires if they really wanted to? Jared closed his eyes and pushed that voice away. That was madness. The Brotherhood was evil, and it needed to be stopped. But it's not going to happen today. I'll keep that in mind, he said at last, looking back up at Shaw. As he did so, he saw Sophus appear from the tunnel, his body glowing with a faint blue nimbus of magical energy. He rose to the surface, turned to Shaw, and called, It is done, mistress. Good work, Shaw said. They squeezed Jared's arm one last time and rose to their feet. I must go now. You should be safe here until you feel strong enough to climb to the surface. The androgyne made an elaborate gesture with one hand, some sort of blessing or invocation that Jared didn't quite catch. May our lord go with you, vessel. Then they stepped off the edge and dropped back into the water. Jared watched as Shaw swam to Sophus. The water mage took the androgyne's hand, and the aura of blue light expanded to encompass them both. Then they dove below the surface and flashed off downstream, leaving a rippling wake in the river behind them. You made it, Jared told himself, as he let out a weak but heartfelt sigh of relief. You survived the crazy doomsday cult. You're free. But no sooner had he thought it than he heard another voice, a calm, quiet one at the back of his mind. We'll see about that, the voice said, and laughed. How do I keep finding myself in these situations? It was a question John had been asking himself all night, and he had yet to find an answer that satisfied him. Since being exposed as an incubus and cast out of his family, John had survived by being smart and practical and not taking unnecessary risks. He would not have called himself a coward, but that was mostly because he thought coward was just a label applied to sane people by brave imbeciles. He could fight if he had to, He'd been raised by a war hero, after all. But most of the time, there was no good reason to. Better to talk your way out of the problem, or just fade back into the shadows. As an incubus, he was well-suited to both. He was not suited to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat with crocodile hyena monsters, or running into an underground compound full of murderous cultists, or dealing with a half-crazed immortal whose approach to crime-fighting was apparently kill them all and let Revenos sort them out. That sort of action was distinctly hero territory, and John was no hero. So why had he followed Kate on this mission? Why had he gone behind enemy lines with Morgan? and then gone inside the cult's tunnels on the chance that there was someone alive to rescue. And now, after seeing Murakir's grisly handiwork, why was he running back into that same compound, 
instead of curling up in a corner somewhere and waiting for this madness to be over. Because Kate's in there somewhere. He didn't know why he felt so sure of it. They hadn't discussed what they would do if Kate and Murakir succeeded in cutting off the Brotherhood's ritual. But in his work with the Church of Hedonism, John had developed an instinct for reading people, for understanding what they wanted and what they needed. And Kate, he was certain, needed to see this through to the finish. She wouldn't be satisfied hanging back and waiting for reinforcements to arrive, giving the bad guys a chance to slip away unseen. This was personal for her now, and she needed a confrontation, something that might give her some closure. She would want to find the mastermind behind all this and look them in the eye as she slapped the cuffs on. That was deeply stupid. Letting things get personal was how people made most of their bad decisions. It was especially dumb for Kate, who had literally just discovered that she was suffering from panic attacks from her last attempt at being an action hero. But Kate was not in a headspace where she could listen to good advice right now. Welcome to Traumaland, he thought sourly. Logic doesn't live here anymore. So he needed to find Kate, and make sure she didn't get herself killed jumping into a situation she clearly wasn't prepared for. Fair enough. But why? Why was this his problem? Yes, he liked her. Quite a lot, really. And they were having fairly fantastic sex on a regular basis. But John had had many lovers, and apart from Morgan, he wouldn't have risked his life for any of them. Well, maybe for one other, he admitted, with a distant and familiar pang of regret. But Delilah was out of his life, forever, and that was better for both of them. And she had been a daughter of the literal goddess of love, which didn't feel like a fair comparison. Why was Kate, a mortal, inspiring the same sort of stupid chivalry Delilah had? John's musings were interrupted by the sudden appearance of half a dozen Brotherhood cultists. They came around a corner about thirty meters ahead, their electric torches waving around wildly as they ran. None of them were holding weapons. John exchanged a look with Morgan, who still moved beside him in near-total silence. This part of the tunnels had nowhere to hide, so ducking out of the way wasn't an option. Morgan met his eyes, set her jaw, and drew her massive hunting pistol. John had left his shotgun back in Morgan's skimmer, so he fell back a few steps, letting her take the lead. She stopped running, planted her feet in the middle of the tunnel, aimed her pistol at the oncoming men, and shouted, Stop! Police! The cultists barely faltered for an instant. Run! One shouted back, his voice shrill with terror. He's coming! He'll kill us all! Morgan hesitated, clearly baffled. Most people would respond quickly to a gun pointed at them. John wondered if they'd even noticed it. A second later, Morgan steadied herself and took aim at center mass on the man in front. Last warning, she shouted. John looked carefully at the men, saw the terror on their faces, saw that still none of them had drawn a weapon. He put a hand on Morgan's shoulder. Wait. Don't do it. Move. To his relief, Morgan didn't argue. She stepped back against the wall, lowered the gun to point at the floor, and waited. 
the men rushed past them without a second glance. John let out a rush of air, suddenly relieved for several reasons. For Morgan, a sworn police officer, to shoot a group of unarmed men would not be a good look, no matter what they had done beforehand. A vampire killing mundanes would make it that much worse. And if the Brotherhood was drawing its membership primarily from the upper tier of Metamore society, fates alone knew what sort of trouble their families might cause for Morgan over the long run. Morgan's shoulders sagged a little, and John guessed that some of those same possibilities were running belatedly through her mind. Well then, shall we go join up with Kate's pet monster? I guess we'd better, John said. Maybe he'll know where Kate is. They went around the corner and saw the skunk man marching slowly toward them, his eye glowing like a burning coal, a cloud of menacing darkness surrounding him. John stopped and stared at the creature for three full heartbeats, and then his brain caught up with him. He laughed. Morgan got there at pretty much the same instant. Her eyes sparkled as she called, Kate? The skunk man dissolved into a swirl of light and shadows, revealing a grinning Kate with her Arthana in hand. The two women ran and embraced each other, quick and fierce. I was so worried, Morgan said, pressing her cheek against the side of Kate's neck. You were worried, Kate laughed, thumping her on the back. You're the ones who went sneaking in here first. She looked up at John over Morgan's shoulder, and that warmth in her eyes seemed to be directed at him just as much as at Morgan. Something in John's chest eased a little. The two women parted, and Kate stepped forward and gave John a quick hug and a peck on the cheek. You good? Hanging in there, John said. We've got a situation, though. Your little skunk friend closed off the exits. All part of the plan, Kate said with a nod. He sealed everything but the front door, and I'm using my illusions to drive the bad guys toward the dead ends. As soon as the reinforcements get here, they'll sweep in and arrest everyone. Morgan and John exchanged a look. Kate noticed and frowned. What? What's wrong? Morgan looked almost apologetic. Kate, darling, I don't think Murakir means to arrest them. Kate's expression turned wary. What do you mean? So Morgan told her about the sealed garage. Kate listened to the description of the carnage in silence, her expression passing swiftly from shock to anger to icy determination. I should have expected this, Kate said quietly, her eyes staring past Morgan and John as she spoke. He told me he was a monster. I should have known what he meant. MCPD is going to have a hard time rolling up the conspiracy if there's no one left to interrogate, John said. Kate nodded absently. She looked like someone running math problems in her head. Murakir's been fighting these people a long time. He's probably given up on mortal law as a way of stopping them. And yet he continues to employ police officers, Morgan observed, her tone dry. Kate waved a hand in Morgan's direction, silently acknowledging the irony. Well, if he's down here, he hasn't shown himself yet. Maybe he wants to make sure everyone on the surface gets corralled inside, Morgan suggested. Immortals do seem to love being thorough, 
John said. Gods know they've got the time for it. What's the play, Kate? We've got to find Tamlin, Kate said. She glanced at Morgan. Have you seen any sign of him? Morgan grimaced. Nothing recognizable. Kate's face paled a little at that, but she narrowed her eyes and gestured for them to follow her. All right, I'm going to assume he's still alive, because I think I would have felt something if he weren't. Meaning what, exactly? John asked. Kate ignored him. I know where he was. If I show you, do you think you could get his scent? Follow his trail? Morgan hesitated, so briefly that John was sure he was the only one who noticed it. Possibly. It depends on how old the trail is. Translation. If the trail leads back to that pile of body parts, Morgan's not going to take Kate anywhere near it, John thought. Kate had enough nightmare fuel already, and Morgan knew it. With a sinking feeling of inevitability, John watched Kate lead them back to the narrow staircase where they had been just a short time ago. But instead of leading them through the darkened doorway to the ritual chamber, Kate continued up the stairs to the top, to a simple round room with a heavy chair in the middle. Morgan and John followed her inside, and... And an icy dagger shoved itself directly into the middle of his spine. John froze his pointed tail shooting out straight behind him. Kate noticed. What is it? she asked, her body language going instantly alert. John shook himself and took a moment to collect his thoughts. Um, look, you know that my kind are attuned to emotions, right? Lust, hunger, desire, things like that? Kate nodded slowly. Right? John took a deep breath and shuddered. Well, this place is filled with... sort of the opposite of that. Or, wait, that's not quite right. Kate looked at him blankly. So did Morgan. John let out a frustrated sigh. All right, think of it this way. You're really attuned to the smell of food. Fats, proteins, sweet stuff. Your body keys into it. Your nose helps you find it. But you're also attuned to what it smells like when food goes bad. Rotten, rancid, infested with mold or bacteria, whatever. Your body warns you to stay away from it. He gestured vaguely at the room around them. That's what this place feels like. Like hunger or lust or desire. Gone bad. Kate frowned. I'm not sure I get it. I'm not sure I do, either. I've never felt anything like this before. There's something seriously fucked up in here. He hesitated. Or there was. I'm not sure it's still here. It's not, Kate said quietly. We shut the door. John stared at her, and finally put the pieces together. Holy shit. This is that? This is where they called up that god thing? Kate nodded and pointed her chin at a spot on the wall. Now that he was looking at it, John could feel the rotten malevolence of the place emanating from that same direction. I think, John said slowly, that we should be really happy you screwed up that ritual. No kidding, Kate said, her tone hollow. And I couldn't have done it without Murakare. John thought about the skunk's psycho-murder party in the garage. 
Then he looked up at that spot on the wall. It didn't look like much, but the psychic stain on this place made Murakir's work look like a child's finger painting. I guess we pick our monsters, John said at last. Morgan, meanwhile, was studying the heavy chair and the floor around it. She pressed her nose into the seat of the chair and into the heavy straps on it. A joke briefly came to mind about Morgan's love of bondage, but John closed his teeth around it. This wasn't the time or the place. All right, Morgan said at last, straightening and turning to face them. I have a good idea of his scent now. Follow me. They went back to the stairs and followed them all the way down to the main corridor. Morgan did not even glance at the door to the ritual room, and John followed her example. Kate did not seem to have noticed it. No sooner had they reached the bottom of the steps than Morgan stopped abruptly, her back going rigid. What's the matter? Kate asked. Did you lose the scent? Morgan's eyes stared at nothing. She cocked her head slightly, a quick, bird-like gesture. Do you hear that? Kate frowned. Hear what? Shh, John murmured, straining his own hearing. His enhanced senses were no match for Morgan's, but he could still outclass a vanilla human. He closed his eyes and listened. And there, in the distance, he heard it. The sound of rushing water. And it was coming closer. Fast. And that's the end of Chapter 60. Come back next time, when Kate tries to get everyone to safety from the coming flood. But Murakir is still on the hunt, and he has his own plans for the surviving cultists. Angelica Banks said, Stories want to be told. Stories have a power of their own. You can't write a story until you've felt it, breathed it in, walked with your characters, talked with them. So come with me, and let's walk a while with my own stories. It's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 3,211 words this week, over the course of 4.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 756 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 343 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued inching forward on my Kevin story, All the World of Fire. I'm now in Chapter 10, and the manuscript is over 27,000 words, but I feel like every writing session is a struggle. I've been averaging only about 500 words a day, and I've been finding it hard to focus on storytelling. I think part of it is about decision fatigue. With my recent promotion at work, I'm taking on more tasks that are cognitively demanding— So when I go to lunch or come home from work, my brain just wants to rest, and writing feels exhausting. It's like coming home from a day of working construction and then trying to go to the gym. I know that this influx of mentally demanding work is seasonal and temporary, and there will be times when it slows down again and I have room to think. But for right now, it's making for some rough sledding on the writing front. Still, I'm putting in the time, at least a little bit every day, and I'm keeping my chain going. I hope that this experience is training my brain to be able to write in more challenging circumstances, 
just like exercise helps to habituate your muscles to handle more work for a longer period of time. I guess we'll find out together, won't we? If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.